0: Well,
1: hello, I'm Neil Taylor.
0: And I'm Gilmar Vent, and this is the GW&Co podcast.
1: For the last couple of episodes, we've been talking to people who said that what their family businesses really needed was outside help. So this month, we're talking to the help. Heinz Leopold was vice president of ice cream at Unilever. In fact, he was the man who launched Magnum until he jumped ship and joined Chibo the German family-run coffee giant with sales of 3.2 billion euro. We'll be talking about how an outsider navigates the tricky waters of a family business.
0: And how you can make a success of a brand that's massive in one country when you take it to new shores.
1: So, Heinz, first of all, why did Chibo decide that they needed the help of an outsider?
2: Because they came to the conclusion that Some input from people who have worked, big international brands on a company like Unilever might be helpful for their own development as Chibo was a brand or as a company that is very strong, Germany, Austria, but beyond the shores, not so strong at all. So they thought that from inside they might not have the talent to help them in that way.
0: And what made you want to leave the corporate safety of Unilever?
2: I, I think it's two things. After 20 years or 22 years in one company, it is necessary to have a change because sometimes uh, things get too comfortable, too cozy, and it doesn't challenge you anymore. And I also liked to basically move from one side, big multinational company, highly professional, to the family side of business because the family owns the business and you really work for the people who have the money and the brand. And it's nice to work with somebody who basically more than 50 years ago was part of the foundation of that company, which you don't have in a multinational.
0: So you started at Shiva. What was the big difference you noticed straight away? Was there one?
2: In a family-run business, the presence of the owner is immediately visible. As a name, he will be mentioned. He might be mentioned by his initials. He might be mentioned by other means within the corporation, but he is present much more than the current CEO of a company like Julie Lever uh, is present in everyday business. And you might find on every level somebody who knows him or her personally, which you don't find in big multinationals where they only talk to the first and second layer usually. Beyond that, they don't care.
0: Sounds a bit like there's a mystic man going around. It
2: is. It is. There is a mystic man. There is mystic history. You always, because usually the company history or the business history is linked to the family history because there will be an aunt sometime who had an idea which was launched into the product and went well or there was an uncle or a son who made a bad idea and didn't work and over the time that is part of the company DNA because it's very much linked to the family DNA uh in many ways. So you're basically coming into a family. It's like marrying, because for them, company is personal. Why for the other company, for Unilever or or Procter or whatever, this is professional. And that makes a big difference. It is really like marrying. I, I like this idea now, because <laughs> it is coming with a whole shebang of everything else. So how did it feel walking into that environment it's it starts with you get into the office uh, or the office building in Hamburg of Chibo if you enter there's the reception on one side and on the other side is the desk of Max Hertz the owner and fa- the founder in 48 who founded the company the original desk and behind there's a picture of him. So you get set into context when you enter the company. Everybody who enters in the company, is it a supplier, some media people, agency people, or new employees or current employees, they know where they're coming. They're coming in like in a British country house. You find the picture of the founder, owner. When you come into the entrance, you know where you are. That's not, you know, some untangible... Hands off business,
1: that's really your point to the family. So when you arrived, did you think, oh, this is interesting? Or did you think, this is weird? A little bit of both,
2: I think. In a way, you like it because it gets personal and i think i like that business is personal i think they think take successes but also failures personally and i think i like it because it's not the hands off approach okay yeah we we messed up the launch in benelux but let's do france next which you find in a company big size company let's yeah the figures didn't, don't match let's do something else you don't find there a mistake is taken personally and it shouldn't happen and they feel that they failed as a family which is far deeper than let's write this two millions off and we do something else
0: we often find there's more freedom to make decisions and to have ideas in family business did you find that
2: there is more as long as it follows the family dna so the family has a very strong conviction why things are successful over such a long time and in the case of g we talk about 60 70 years so although they have had their ups, their downs, their disasters, their successes, So, and they still are in a way prospering in that market. But as long as you are in that DNA, innovation and doing things new is easier because if the family trusts you, actually it doesn't really matter if the finance guy makes, yeah, that might be in year 25 not, professional, not successful or they might have less profit, they trust you because it's part of the DNA. Now, we know that, obviously, if you can forecast things, that's not the way how business successes are made. They are made with the odd decision. And there's, for example, in Chibu, there's one odd decision over time. Chibu was giving in the past, we're talking about the 70s, they were, with their slightly overpriced coffee to the market average, they were giving away certain napkins, cups, etc. And then there came the disruptive element of the German government who said you can't give away products worth more than 5% of the real product value. So you couldn't give away cups, napkins, etc. because coffee is not that expensive. And then you make the decision, let's sell that instead of giving it away for free. So selling the cups. Yes. And the napkins. Selling the cups. And this built basically then a non food business, which today is two of the company and three quarter of the profit. But if you I would argue you wouldn't have never been able in an international business with controllers to make that case. Because they will also call you all that you know, you be give it away for free.
1: Why is anybody willing to buy it now? And just by the way, why were people willing to buy a Chibo cup? Because from the cup,
2: they started to invent other products in that area. And they were becoming, we call it now, in the 70s, in Germany, the, the, the disruptors. They were offering an article at a very good price level, uh, at a very good quality, at a lower price. So they have bikes and they had, for example, they were the first offering of the, you know, the digital watch, which came in the 70s, with the, which are now f- famous again, or popular again, with like, you know, 12, 25, you know, on... The Casio, there was a cheap, Casio, yeah. Uh, that was uh, like, they offered it for 40 marks. Why in a shop you would get at 120.
1: I was going to say, if you're not German, cheapo is a really odd business, isn't it? If you're not British, Marks & Spencer is a very odd business
2: as well, because, and we, perhaps vice versa, Marks Spencer tried Germany, Chibo is still trying UK, so it doesn't work directly until you don't know the heritage. Chibo was starting their coffee sales with a mail order service in 1949, and that was present in many families that you buy your coffee at Chibo. Therefore, it takes time to build a brand, to build a heritage and all the things they made, they're selling, let's say, 25 years only coffee before they start with a non-food business. That's the reality of Germany. If you now bring the current content to the UK, you sell coffee and non-food articles from the beginning. So that needs explanation because why do I have bras and underwear and pants next to coffee? I understand a coffee machine or a cup or a napkin but why is there a bra in the same shop if you go to germany every german lady on average should have one chibo bra statistically somewhere in her house and vice versa if you know i come to england and see marx and spencer i would do the same way as a german to say why do you have food fresh food brilliant food Good offerings combined with a lot of underwear uh, as well.
1: So, and some clothes that no one buys. Yeah,
2: and some clothes and, and, and suits with, two, with uh, two trousers. So there are certain <laughs> things uh, that we don't understand coming from the continent.
0: It's interesting. I remember some Chiba was in, in London for a while in the UK. And I didn't buy coffee there, but I did buy a ski gear there. And it was very good. Because you're German. It, it, because I well, I knew you know, Chivo is the place you go to, to get something at good quality at cheap prices. But clearly there weren't that many Brits who thought the same. So it didn't quite work out, didn't it?
2: No, it didn't quite work out. It doesn't quite work out. It's not working out today because I fundamentally think if you build the Chivo brand universe correctly, you have... Coffee business, and now I'm just replicating how it is in Germany, you have a coffee business where, compared to non-food, the price is 30% above market average price. And you have a non-food business where you are 10% above discounters like Aldi and Lidl. And the business comes, or the the success of the business model is, but you have the same cost like they have. So you make more money than Lidl and Aldi. And this only works if you, for the consumer side, they see and that's really funny and really interesting consumer insight, they think, because of non-food, that the coffee actually is not as expensive as it really is, if you make the figures, and on the other hand, uh, they say the non-food, because of the coffee, must be of higher quality than Lidl and Aldi, so that 10% is justified. And that now makes a brilliant concept, but it starts with the coffee.
1: I'm sure some brand consultant somewhere is calling that a twin halo effect.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, But it wouldn't be called in a family business like
0: this. <laughs> Coming back <laughs> that's to the family. Way it yeah. was. <laughs> Let's <laughs> come back to family. So we've learned about how you can innovate and um, having the freedom to make long-term decisions. The flip side, does it get chaotic at times?
2: It gets chaotic at times. There's a lot of emotion. And a lot of things have happened. And compared to big multinationals, where basically the leadership is turned around in a three to five years cycle, at Shibu you have people in charge who have been there for 40, 50 years. So they have seen a lot and feel a lot. And as they have seen successes, they have also seen Disasters happening where their money, as they think, has been wasted. With this kind of decisions, you have huge problems in the family business because they will say, but in '85 we did exactly the same thing and didn't work. Why should it work today, Mr. Leopold? And that is where you have problems. And that makes also a process chaotic because sometimes not the direct contact you talk to, knows about this from the family but the grandmother when they go home they talk about oh we do this great thing and they oh my god we have wasted you know we nearly went bankrupt in 55 when we did this and then it comes back to you so you have the problem you know there is no perfect world i think the, the private family business have their strengths and the Big business have their strengths, and I think the art of being really successful is bringing both together in the best way. So bringing a certain structure and belief in processes into family business is of essence because they have such a short reporting line. You have two layers and you're done. Then you are at the owner, and then you leave you have two layers, then you are perhaps covered in your country, but then there's the region, then there's global, then there's supervisory board, and then there are some rogue uh, shareholders who want to give some influence. So that's uh, not as easy as that, but there's a process. Also in the family business, it takes time because they listen to many people, because in the end, they still feel it's their own money, which it is. But sometimes it doesn't help if you always think it's your own money and I might lose my own money that makes you conservative in decision despite being open to innovation. So it's both sides. It's yes and no.
1: And it sounds like you might be having conversations that are rather indirect.
2: Yes. There are conversations that are indirect. They are conversations with colleagues, the people who are hired by the family, who then feel that they overheard in a certain setup from the owner, from the aunt, from the grandmother, certain input to the process that they are willingly share with you, which uh, is support or concern, but not in a structured way. And you have to find a way how you manage this, because in the end, the families they are there because they are successful and not stupid, but they are not aware. I think. How much gossip and talk about what people think they might like and feel comfortable about is shared within the organisation. But you don't know the context because it's not always said directly to you. And sometimes it's not said at all because other people make the politics about it.
1: So you said earlier that ideas would be accepted if they fit with the DNA of the family. Was the DNA made explicit.
2: No. The DNA is felt. Is How is your family DNA? From your own family? You know it because you are in it and you are part of the family. But if now a partner comes in, this is where the trouble starts. (laughs) Your partner doesn't know exactly how the DNA, how it works and where we do Christmas and we do New Year's and which birthday to avoid and which birthday to go to and where somebody gets drunk or whatever. You know, this is not known to you and there's no structure and there's not nowhere that there's basically a big statement where you can read it up so you have to experience yourself you have to traipse around and make your inroads into the family but also be careful not to overstep and I think that's the thing especially if you come from a big organization to to get this personal part in and that is never said because the point is is that if you make this match and there's the family company who wants to hire the person and the person from the bigger corporation, they talk about the same thing but mean totally different things. The one is talking about the DNA. The other one is saying, yeah, okay, then I've, I will read the brand DNA and get it. But it's like an iceberg. There's 10% of the brand DNA is there. It's visible. But there's 80, 90% of the company DNA underwater and you, it's very cold around there to dive it up and
1: find it. So, Gilmar, if when you're working with a family business, there's all this implicit stuff, what do you do when you get the job of helping to communicate that better?
0: It's actually remarkably similar to what Heinz just outlined, you know, the, the, the issue of trust or gaining trust. Is absolutely key. That's no different to any other business we work in. You need to work out what's really happening. There's one thing that's explicit, and there's a lot that's under the under the water, as Heinz just said. And it's a question of you know probing, listening between the lines, as well as what what people are saying, and then gently helping to bring that out by saying, "Have I understood this right? Is this what you're thinking? Is that what you're thinking?" So it's starting that dialogue. And helping to articulate it slowly, but to try and get as much of that iceberg out of the water.
1: And it sounds like it might be a culture shock to some of these businesses to actually communicate that stuff internally. Because they assume everyone knows it. I like my example from the family.
2: You know, you, Why should you be willing to write down your personal family DNA? You wouldn't feel it's necessary because you know it and everybody involved know it. So that's where it starts. But if you have a brand like Dove or Magnum, there is a you know, 20 pages folder at least plus 100 pages uh, of supporting material to give anybody neutral coming in to be able to manage that brand DNA.
0: The fascinating thing for me is that in, in, in corporate life, in creating a brand like Magnum or Dove or whatever, you have to invent it all. It wasn't there. you know. Maybe you have a hint of something because that brand has been around for some time. But in a family, it's all there. So it, it's the opposite. You know, On one hand, you're coming outside in. In a family, you need to work inside out.
2: And the family business, they come from the product and not from the brand usually. They have invented a product that was a breakthrough one year, 10 year, 100 years ago from that. So they didn't come from the assumption like a Unilever proctor to say how to make an average ice cream more expensive than the other average, put some branding and aspiration around it. That might work. The family business made usually an inroad into the market because they made a product, a service, that has been better than the average and was highly appreciated by the market. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there anymore. So they don't have fundamentally from the basic DNA, the understanding how to t- generate the intangible value of brand and the necessity to have so because they had a superior product. Unfortunately, that was the problem where the external support would be necessary for familiar companies. This won't last forever because there are companies and they, okay, that's a nice business model, they make a nice so it's not rocket science or the patent has run out, let's do the same. And this is where companies then disappear because they were not able to real competition and also competition about the mindset of the consumer, how they perceive your product. Because yes, Magnum is a very nice ice cream, but I can't but is it really worth this much more than. Average ice cream, you decide. Okay, we're, we're getting into
0: disclosure <laughs> land here, or not? But I want to come back to to that you know to that situation that you just described. So clearly, Chibu were finding themselves in a place where they're saying, okay, would we have to get some outside help? Now you come in with your outside-in branding perspective. How did you gain the trust, and what did you do in order to change things?
2: You have to talk a lot to the people you have to first understand that it works totally different than what you have learned and that's the process it's not the content it's the process you have to understand that uh, the impact of the owner of the family is important it is not as you might consider because they have no formal role, they are not a board member, they are not, one of them might be in the supervisory board, but not the one, but the family is still present in one or the other context. And they might only send an email, you know, I've seen last week in this shop and I like it, or more often I don't like it, please do something about it. Um, so, and there's the big point, how to judge this, how to judge this as is it now an order to do things because it's the family or is it a friendly meant advice or whatever and I think you have to find your way because also the family members are not all the same I uh, don't have the same agenda because usually there might be some family members who are more entitled to assess the business give feedback which has to be taken seriously and others Are part of the family who are related to the brand usually carry the name of the company as well, but they are more, you know, in the broader sphere of it and give certain inputs which you can consider or even not if you have a good argument not to do it.
1: And presumably, you don't know who is who when you start. Absolutely, they for them it's all obvious how things
2: are. I think, and it is company, brand, family that is a hierarchy in a family run business. The family is above everything. And you are in the third layer. And this layer family doesn't exist in Unilever. There's people and brand. So there's another layer you have to learn. How much a family, and I know I separate from Chiba to other companies, how much time the family allows and has the self-reflection of yeah, we are a funny family. It, it nice to, yeah, there are some families who have this and other families who don't have it. I think that is also to be considered as not every family is the same. The family businesses, I think they are much more diverse than the average multinational from the way. I would say if you know one multinational, you know more or less how it works. There are different products, different people, but they have very similar processes because otherwise you can't run global businesses. A family business can be from highly professional, process-oriented, nearly as organized as a multinational to basically a person who has a 4 billion turnover business but still thinks he is working out of a sweatshop or out of his garage as he did 40 years ago. He will always say, this is how I made my four billion. It can't be wrong.
1: So did you consciously change your style?
2: Yes, you have to. I was twenty two years at Unilever, five years at Shibo. We can also it wasn't then forever, but it was a pretty long time at Shibo because it takes some time, some resilience also, and some acceptance how different things are because. Let's say, what is the briefing? You go into the company and say, oh, we like what you are doing in your company, please give it to us. And then somebody says, okay, now I know how to do it. I bring my papers, I bring my booklets, and now I will start doing it like they said to me, let's do it. And it's not like this. Because there are total different drivers in the company, and you have to get this personal component. And it is, I think, if you look about recruiting, This is for me the fundamental person that you get empathy and personal component in a person who works in a multinational company. And this you have to find. Not what he does, but does he have the empathy to put up with what working in a family business needs. I talked much more within the company because it is important to spread the word more broadly, because if you work in a multinational, you are thinking more hierarchically. I have to get my boss and his peers aligned. But in Chibo, I had to get the receptionist on my side because the receptionist was the first person when the owners come in, he would ask. He would also say, "How's things going?" Because he feels that if he talks to the receptionist, He feels he knows the mood of the company. And if the receptionist said, yeah, there's some great project coming up from Liverpool, uh, that would help. Might help more than I have convinced my boss. Because they feel that they, you know, it's a family. They don't really care about hierarchies. They have them and their different salaries and they understand this, but they don't understand or they don't follow a procedural consequence of what hierarchy means. And they will come back to you and that's uh, what happened that uh, in one case he might be even feel obliged to adjust in one shop certain things because he felt the lady there made a good case. Now, you wouldn't run a company where, you know, a product like Dove is called Owl in one country because somebody made a case that this sounds nice in this country and a Dove actually wouldn't work well. In a family-run business, this might happen. And you have to find a way to make sure in a respectful way, because coming from multinational, you will basically fall backwards over your chair when you hear this, in a respectful way to understand what lies behind. Because what lies behind is the eternal trial to improve the business with respect to the family and less respect to the brand. And this is what I said. This is what changes when you come from the multinationals. The brand is everything. Anybody who destroys the brand of walls is in disaster, and Unilever. If somebody says, let's make Chibo on a green background in the UK instead of a blue, well, let's try it.
0: Could help What things did you achieve? You had a big brief to change the coffee business.
2: Chibo moved into the coffee capsule business, which they haven't been in the past because the family fundamentally thought that it is a ripoff to sell coffee and capsule as ecological a disaster.
0: which is both true of course.
2: Which is both true. But the problem is if your consumers leave your brand because they want an offer that you didn't give, and if you then have the problem that they don't buy the other coffee at all so the question is and that was the project how to make a much more ecologically acceptable route to a single portion system and this is what we did cafissimo has been launched in, in germany and in central europe uh, is number two to three in that market and is different to nespresso dulce gusto and other brands so there's one step into that area and also what we have done is that we basically put products which we call rarities, individual products into that market which of highest quality single source, single farm sourcing uh, to work on the image of Chibo has the best coffee in the German market because through Nespresso this was challenged from the side because I always said there can't be a coffee brand in Germany that has a higher reputation quality than Chibo. And for the family, it was very difficult to understand that somebody who comes from a technical perspective is able to make a brand value that now attacks you on your fundamentals. And that convinced them. I did a lot of research, but what convinced them when friends told them at home the same story I have told them in office.
1: So you had an impact on the products on and the, the product. business. Yeah. Do you think you had an impact on the culture? No.
2: The culture in this companies is stronger than the single employee, especially if they are external. In the family business, the family is the family, is the family, is the family, is the brand. You don't change this as one external person. I might have, have married somebody from the family. Then, you then might you've got your able, ideas through. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Here's <is> a tactic. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, yeah. This family essence is protected by the family as the Holy Grail. So, coming to this uh, nice thing about marrying, even that. I don't know if Albert changed a lot the British
1: monarchy a little bit but not the fundamentals. So if you were giving advice to the owner of a family business who was about to hire in someone senior like you about how to make that work what would you be saying? I would be saying understand his real intention.
2: Because if his intentions is money, title, career building, this might not last for long it might not be the person you want if this if he has a real fundamental interest in this business and an understanding of what he will to put need to put up with to be successful that's the right person and that might not be usually the first line of people you think of because this are not the shiny, let's say, top performers in the multinational company. Because they are the top performers in that company, because they are so wonderfully adept to how this company works. And this might be the people first you want to hire, because they are exposed to you, oh, he does a great job on this brand, on that brand. And they look good on paper. And they look good on paper. But for your setup they might not be the right people. You might find them rather in the second layer because who gets careers, now it's another podcast which is who gets careers in multinationals? That's a certain kind of breed. And that's where the problem starts because then they say, but we want this guy, he is doing great at Amazon. Yes. But that is not necessarily transferable to you.
0: And how should family business choose outside providers, not just the people they employ, but people that can help them on their brand, on their communication?
2: I think they should look for people who are interested in their family and not in their brand. I would look into companies who have successfully worked with other privately owned companies, small businesses, because... If that worked, it's the best proof of the pudding that they can do it for you as well. And again, I wouldn't look for the big multinational sizable consultants. This is very individual. Look into who might help you, who might trust.
1: Okay, now the questions, Heinz, that we deliberately don't warn you about. It's the quick fire round, so I want instant, instinctive, punchy answers. Oh my God, yeah. So, best thing about working in a family business? The family. Worst thing?
2: The family. <laughs> and it's true, it's on both ways. Like, I played, uh, I was invited to a a canasta game with the owner's grandmother. Yeah, that's how it goes in a family business.
1: And that never happened with the chief executive in Unilever?
2: No, never. And you were basically, then they made, uh, I think they were more tougher years, so we made basically the Christmas party on the terrace of their house. And it has... A tangibility—that's where the sources of source of this company is. The roots are, which you don't have in a multinational. This gives it such a great feeling, and I love it.
1: What are you most proud of in your career?
2: Uh, actually, I stream Latin America, where my briefing was that I should Unilever had acquired companies there, so the expat team comes in and should work with to develop local talent to follow them. And that has totally happened. It's fully run by Latin American people from Mexico, Brazil, Chile. And it's one of the most successful regions in the ice cream context in Unilever. And why I'm proud of this, it's 10 years after I left there. Not, you know, we know in big companies, you make a three years run in a big company. The first year you say everybody your predecessor did is not good. The second year you make a big ambitious plan about what has to be done. And in 30 years, you try to move to the next job because you might need to execute it. And then the next person comes to say everything your predecessor has done is wrong. So this is three years in the multinational.
1: And finally, what's been your biggest
2: mistake? That's another podcast, and it's called Ice Croissant. It's a launch of a product where I listen to market research because everybody says to you, ice cream and a warm component is the perfect thing everybody wants. Till today, this product has the best test results ever on a five-point scale, 4.95 of 120 people. Um, And it was a big flop. It was a total big flop, because in the end what we forgot is that the consumer, as much as he liked the product and the test was made, somebody came in and gave him the product. What wasn't mentioned is that you have to stand 20 minutes in front of your oven to come to that result for one croissant. And now you talk to Germans, one croissant, switching the oven on for 20 minutes, not for me. We even built a new factory for... I can't tell. It's really, <laughs> really, really, really embarrassing. And that's it. <laughs> well,
1: thank you, Heinz, for Ice Croissant. A pleasure. And ideas for the it next four podcasts. <laughs> Until next time, if you don't know GW&Co, have a look at gilmarvent.com, where there's a series of blogs about the questions we're looking at on these podcasts and more on how GW&Co can help with them. And if you're enjoying the podcasts, please leave us a review wherever you listen so that other lucky people can find them. I'm Neil Taylor.
0: And I'm Gilmar Vent. And that was the GW&Co podcast.